Good morning. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to Mark chapter 6, we're going to spend the majority of our time there. I think I'll have a slideshow coming up here. We're going to begin with looking at a few verses from other places, but I have those up so we don't have to do too much page flipping this morning. We will end up in Mark. I want to start in Isaiah 35. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for such a place that we can come together and freely examine your word and worship you and not have the fear of persecution that so many around the world have to come together and look at this word that you have given us. We thank you for your word that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that all we need is summed up here in your scriptures. We thank you for that. Help us not to take it lightly, that we would strive to live our lives by the word that you have given us, and that all we do would glorify you. I pray this morning that anything of my own opinion or things that I have to say would not be said, and if they are, that they would be forgotten, and that only what, the, what your spirit would have me say this morning would be spoken, and that is what would be remembered. So help us to have our eyes opened and our ears opened as well as we look through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Isaiah 35. So this is a promise. A promise of restoration. In the context here in Isaiah 35, we see many warnings. There's chapters and chapters full of warnings to the people of Israel, to all nations for that matter, uh, of a time where those those people would not recognize God. They would not see God for who He is. They would be in a fruitless time, wasting their lives. But uh, 700 years, this was written about 700 years before Christ came onto the earth. There was a promise of one who would come, and, and at that time the eyes of the blind would be opened, and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped. In Isaiah 29, it also talks about this. It says, The deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to start by reading in verse 31. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard, so a few words may be different from what you have. Mark 7, verse 31, speaking of Jesus. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought brought to him a deaf man who had also had a speech difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd privately. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, 
Ephatha, which is not some magical phrase. It's just Aramaic. It's just the language that Jesus was speaking there. And Mark translates, translates it for us and says, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and his speech difficulty was removed or his speech impediment was removed and he began to speak clearly. Then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. And as we talked about this morning, verse 37 here, they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes deaf people to hear and people unable to speak, talk. So, 700 years before this event, the prophet Isaiah spoke of one who would come and restore sight to the blind. Now, in Isaiah, the, the prophecy is speaking of a spiritual blindness, a deadness in the hearts of men towards God and who He was. And Jesus comes now and gives an, an abundant fulfillment of that prophecy, right? He comes and just to make it so clear of who He is, He fulfills this prophecy physically and in the flesh. And He does this not only here, but even in the next uh, chapter, in chapter 8, Starting in verse 22, we see another healing here, right? He just uh, healed a man of deafness and uh, a speech impediment. And now in chapter 8, verse 22, he says, uh, um, the word of God says, Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything or what do you see? He looked, up, he looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village or don't talk about this in the village. Jesus fulfilling in the flesh this prophecy written 700 years before he would come. Who could do such things? Who could heal a man of blindness, of deafness, of muteness? There was one named John, John the Baptist. And he came to, uh, as the scriptures say, prepare the way for Christ. He preached uh, to everyone in the area that Christ was coming to that they should repent uh, uh, for the kingdom of God was at hand, meaning Christ was coming. And John the Baptist, uh, at one point here in prison, Here's of the things that Jesus is doing um, in his ministry as he walks around to these different villages and he hears about these things. And uh, for one reason or another, which we won't go into too far today, in Matthew 11, we see that John, uh, he hears about the works of Christ and he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the one coming? Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you see, hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. As evidence of who he was, Jesus refers back uh, to these prophecies in Isaiah and the works that he has been doing. John asks, are you the coming one? Or as we might uh, uh, phrase is who is this Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? We heard about that a little bit this morning as well. Who is Jesus? So as we read through a few passages here, I want us to keep in mind who Jesus is. 
first of all, that he is the son of God. What does this mean? He is the son of God. That means he is not only like God or not only commissioned by God, but that he is indeed God. He is fully God with all authority over heaven and earth. He is the Christ, right? Christ is not actually Jesus' last name. That is a title. That means anointed one or coming one. The one prophesied about throughout the scriptures, right? Uh, We just saw in Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. This wasn't something that was said uh, uh, months prior and Jesus heard about it and said, oh, I'm going to go do that. 700 years has passed. He is the Christ, the anointed one sent to be a king and deliverer. And then this one, pure actuality, right? Jesus, even in the Old Testament, God gave himself a name. He said, I am. I am that I am. Right? When any of us would say something about, I am Andrew, I am this person, all we're doing is just distinguishing ourselves from another person. When God says, when Jesus says, I am, he is saying, Uh, that there is none before him. He is not one in a chain of creation. There is none above him. There is no one that he answers to. There is no one uh, that he looks to for answers. He is the standard and the source of all things. When we talk about what is good and bad and what is right and wrong, we don't look towards our culture to see what they're doing. Uh, We don't look towards our feelings to see how we feel about what's right and wrong. We look towards the one who is above all other things, And what he says and what he does and what he decides, that is our source for everything. He is pure actuality. He is all that uh, was. Uh, He did not come into being. He did not have a beginning. He does not need a cause. He is the necessary, uncaused cause of all things. So what does this mean of Jesus? He is God, the Savior. He is God the Savior. And that's what we want to remember as we look through these passages here. Jesus is going to consistently prove himself as God the Savior. But those who are spiritually blind and deaf won't see it. Whether they refuse or that they're, uh, they're not looking closely, they won't see it. Although he proves it over and over, they won't see it. So who is blind and deaf? Back to that Isaiah 29 passage. Right there before we hear the promise of eyes and ears being opened. Isaiah 29:13 says, These people draw near with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips. They say lots of good things. But have removed their hearts from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. A lot of people talk a good game. They say, oh yeah, I believe in God. God takes care of me. I love God. That's great. But it doesn't match up with the way they live and with what's in their heart. Their fear about God is taught by the commandment of men. Many other religions rely on uh, a man's ideas and man's traditions. Do this. Don't do this. Come here at this time. Do this. And they have a very strict schedule of, of how one is to relate to God and how one ought to think of God. And we can see that throughout uh, our day today. Lots of people who have um, an idea that the way to please God is with this list of regulations and rules. And in, in the scripture, we see a group called the Pharisees who would take the word of God. And rather than looking at, 
at the spirit and, and, and word and intention of the law and, and of the scriptures, they would take it and say, okay, here's a rule, here's a rule, here's a rule, here's a rule. Hundreds and hundreds of rules they pull out of scripture and this is how they fear God. Jesus talks about these people in John 5, 39, saying, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. You think that this um, uh, this law right here, this uh, these strict rules, that this is eternal life. But the scriptures... Uh, these are they which testify of me. The point of the scriptures is Christ. The point of the scriptures was to testify to Christ, but it was missed. The, the, those who were spiritually blind and deaf would see the scriptures and come up with their own intentions and traditions of how to relate to God. So to, to have that blindness and deafness removed, what does that mean? Jesus explains it. In John seventeen three. he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ. The anointed one, the promised one. Knowing who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who do we think Jesus is? This is foundational to our faith. This is what our faith is based on. Verses like Romans 10.9 that we hear and we say in passing all the time, uh, it's a common verse that, that uh, Christians will throw around. Um, it, it's a great verse. Um, if, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? This is what we tell people. This is how you come to Christ. Well, what's, what's happening here? Confession with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Some versions will say that Jesus is Lord. Right? Confessing who Jesus was, that he is God. And believing in your heart. Not like the Pharisees who um, with their words say it, but not with their heart. Believing in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead. Who would God raise from the dead? This was prophesied. This is Jesus, God, the Savior. The need for our God and Savior in Romans 6.23. Again, a common verse in, in the Christian church that we see. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in... Christ Jesus, our Lord, it doesn't merely say Jesus. It reiterates who he is, that he is the anointed promised one and fully God. This is the foundation of our salvation. But uh, what has happened to those who are spiritually blind and they see Jesus, maybe they acknowledge his historical r- reality, but not who he is. Back in our Isaiah 29 passage, it says, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Meaning, the, the one who made the vessel, the one who created, uh, will he be thought of as just merely clay? No, he's in control of the clay. He made it. For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he didn't make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? This is mankind today. So many people deny uh, God's, not only God as creator, but God's role in their life. Maybe some acknowledge that God exists, but they kind of have this attitude of, I'm doing my own thing, right? God has created, but, you know, he, maybe, maybe he has no understanding of my life and what I'd like to do. Uh, but God is the potter over the, the vessel. He is the one that created. And Isaiah says that this is a blindness, a deafness, that it is backwards, Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has revealed himself in creation. We heard about that this morning too. The rocks cry out. Uh, That could very easily, literally mean the rocks, by the power of God, make audible noises. But what else does it mean? It means that we see a rock, we see any part of creation, and that should just scream to us the obviousness of a creator. Creation cries out. When we look at creation, it clearly points to the existence of God and His power, so that they are without excuse. I know a few folks that say, at, uh, uh, when they stand before God, they're going to say, well, you should have you made it more obvious. They think they're going to say that. They're not going to say that. They're going to realize that creation has made it very clear. God has given us more than we need. All people have access to know who God is. And all people have access to be saved by God through Jesus, right? So this is where this all comes together in Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is God the Savior, and He proves it over and over. And it's the blind and the deaf spiritually that won't see it. So that's what I want us to keep in mind. God as uh, the Son of God, the the fullness of God with all the authority over heaven and earth. God as the Christ, the prophesied Messiah. And God as far above and far before all other things and people. That's what I want us to keep in mind and see how he proves himself over and over as God the Savior and how over and over people will continue to be blind and deaf to that throughout the scripture. So let's start in Mark 6. We're going to move quickly through these passages, looking at little excerpts and seeing how God proves himself over and over. Mark 6, let's look at verse 2, 2 and 3. When the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? So right there, two questions. Where did this man get this wisdom? How could he have such wisdom? The scripture says of God and of of Christ, uh, uh, the fullness of God in, in Jesus, by wisdom he created the earth. Wisdom belongs to him. His thoughts are higher than ours. His understanding is infinite. The answer to who could have such knowledge to as, as this man here teaching in the synagogue is God. Who could perform such mighty works? These miracles. How are these miracles performed by his hands? Scripture says, the heavens are the work of his fingers. Humanity is his craftsmanship. He upholds the universe. He holds the universe together by his word. He's created atoms and galaxies. He has authority. He commands gnats in the scripture. He commands demons in the scripture. Who could perform such miracles and and mighty works? God. So they ask of Jesus, "Who who could be so wise and so mighty? The answer is that Jesus as God the Savior. But in verse 3, do they see it? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. 
They didn't see him as God the Savior. They saw him as this guy from their town and wondered why he was so full of himself. Jesus proves himself as God the Savior. Let's turn over to verse uh, 14. <clears throat> 14, excuse me. Mark 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of this. He heard of the things that Jesus was doing because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So we heard at the start in Matthew 11, right? John the Baptist was the one who asked about uh, Jesus and the things that he had done. It's another story, but King Herod had uh, John the Baptist killed. He had his head cut off. So he's not just dead. He's like really dead, okay? But the things that Jesus was doing was so miraculous that some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these supernatural powers are at work in him. Think about that. <clears throat> Rather than recognizing Jesus as God, it seems more plausible to them that someone who's been beheaded has come back from the dead. And others would say he's Elijah, a prophet uh, long gone for 850 years. And others would say he's a prophet, like one, like one of the prophets. He's just a prophet. Because of the things Jesus was doing, people thought it more plausible that someone had come back from the dead rather than to understand that Jesus continuously proves himself as God, the Savior. The New Testament, the whole Bible is, is a picture of, of Christ proving himself as God, the Savior. But the blind, the spiritually blind and deaf, they won't see it. They refuse to see it. Let's skip ahead to verse 30 now. Chapter 6 still in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. People ran there by land from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. Now this also gives us a little bit of insight into the healings that we see in 7 and 8 coming up. When he healed the blind man and the deaf man, and he says, don't tell anyone. Why? Because... Massive crowds were now swarming them everywhere they went. We'll see how big this crowd was in a minute. People running uh, by land from all of the towns <clears throat> arrived ahead of them. So as he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, we'll skip ahead. We'll just glance here real quick at verse 44. Um, it refers to 5,000 men. Okay? So 5,000 men were there, and that's just counting men. So if we assume some women and children, it's very easy to have 10, 15, 20,000 people here. Okay? That's a crowd. That's a crowd. Verse 35, let's go back. When it was already late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness, and it's already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus says to them in verse 37, you give them something to eat. I get overwhelmed when I have three or four people come over. And thankfully my wife helps to feed those people. Or actually I don't really do anything. It's my wife. I pull things in and out of the oven. So he just tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they're looking at 15,000 people. 
And he says, you give them something to eat. And so they say, should we go and buy uh, 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Do you want us to go buy 15,000 servings of bread? And he says, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And they found out, they said, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. So everyone can get one three thousandth of a loaf. You're going to cut it into three thousand pieces. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was filled. And they picked up 12 baskets full of bread and fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, not to mention the women and children. Sorry, I haven't been skipping my verses ahead here. We remember back at um, a party when Jesus was with his mother Mary and the party ran out of wine. Jesus... Uh, Mary approaches Jesus and she says, she says, they've run out of wine. And he says, what does this have to do with me? Right? Mary's response is very different than the disciples. At a party where they've run out of wine, Mary runs to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And here, Jesus says, feed the people. And they say, what do you want us to do? You want us to go get bread? They don't recognize his ability to provide. And what a miracle, right? This isn't, this isn't he, he doubled the bread like he had it hidden in his coat and snuck out a second loaf or something like that. He's turning bread into enough to feed 15,000 people. You didn't have, that's not up your sleeves. And 12 baskets left over. He proves himself as God the Savior. A few verses later, <clears throat> the disciples have left. They're on their boat. Uh, Jesus stayed behind to pray, and they're, ro- they're rowing, they're struggling, they're fighting against the sea. And in verse 49, well, 48, let's go to 48 first. We're still in chapter 6 here. Um, he saw them being battered or, or rowing against the wind uh, because the wind was against them. Around 3 in the morning, or a lot of your uh, translations will say the fourth watch of the night, which was about 3 a.m., he came toward them walking on the sea. And wanted to pass by them. In verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now again, we see Christ, Christ here. Well, first of all, who could walk on the water? God. Christ proving himself as God the Savior. And then he speaks, it is I. This is the, the Greek New Testament words for that Old Testament name God gives himself. I am that I am. The pure actuality of God. He got into the boat with them. The wind ceased. They were completely astounded. Now that's interesting. This man that just fed 15,000 people with a few loaves of bread... They're astonished that he can walk on the water. Now, it's an astonishing sight, no doubt. But what does it say? Why were they so astonished? Verse 52, because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. 
They were blind and deaf. They didn't understand what Jesus was proving to them. And then we come to our passage, uh, the first one we read here in chapter 7 now, verse 31. We'll start in uh, verse 32. They brought to him a deaf man who had a speech impediment or difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on them. So he took him away from the crowd privately and putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened. His speech difficulty was removed and he began to speak clearly. I don't want to turn this into too much of a practical spiritualization or anything, but the way that this man's uh, deafness is healed is by being alone with the Lord and, and, and having his ears literally, literally filled with the Lord Jesus, with the Word of God. That's a good practical tip for us, is to not be surrounded by noise and people and filling our minds constantly with a, a constant stream of information, but to take a moment to step aside and let our ears be filled with just the Word of God. That is where we have our, our deafness removed. Now notice here, because we'll see it again, a pattern. Um, the man was taken aside privately with Christ and his ears were filled literally with the Lord. We'll see that in just a moment again. He who heals the deafness, fulfilling that 700-year-old prophecy, could be no one other than God the Savior. We'll look real quick at verse 4 of chapter 8. There's another crowd now that has come around Jesus. Another huge crowd. This one we'll see is 4,000 people. So not a big deal. Not as big as the last crowd, right? No biggie. And Jesus says, we can't send them home. It's too big of a journey. And what do the disciples say? Oh, great. We have a loaf here. You can bless it and feed them again like you did last time. Nope. They say, where can anyone get enough bread in this desolate place to fill these people? How many loaves do you have, he says. They have seven. And he blesses it and he feeds the 4,000 people with baskets, baskets full of bread left over. But the disciples were not seeing who Jesus was. Although he proves it over and over. He multiplies this bread into feed 4,000 now. He just walked to them on the water. He stopped. He calmed the ocean. He healed a man of deafness. <clears throat> and then they still say, how are we going to get enough bread? A little after that in verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Again, people think he's so uh, mighty and wise that he must be raised from the dead. That's the only plausible option. He takes a few loaves and feeds 5,000 people. He walks on the water. He calms storms. He feeds 4,000. And the Pharisees say, prove it. Verse 18 says, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Now Jesus is talking to the disciples. 
He says, do you have eyes and do you not see? Do you have ears and do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000? Then he, in verse 20, he says, when I broke seven loaves for 4,000. And in 21, he says, do you not understand yet? Over and over, Jesus continuously proves himself as God the Savior, but the blind and deaf won't see it. Verse 22, chapter 8 still. Then they came to Bethesda, this is, or Bethsaida rather. This is what we read at the start, the healing of the blind man. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. What does he do? He takes the blind man by the hand, takes him out of the village. He spits on his eyes and puts his hand. We'll see later that it was his eyes that he put his hands on. He says, do you see anything? He says, I see people, but they look like trees. It was blurry. And Jesus again places his hands on the man's eyes, and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. What happens? Jesus takes a blind man aside, privately, quietly, alone. Puts his hands, fills his eyes with with nothing. There's nothing there but Jesus' hands. Well, um, his hands have covered his eyes, we'll say. And this is what removes the man's blindness. Even back in, in passages we've just skimmed over, Jesus tells the disciples to go aside and be alone. This is a very good, practical way for us to be <clears throat> healed of our blindness and deafness to who, who Christ is and who he constantly proves himself to be as God the Savior, to get alone with God Fill our eyes and ears with the word, not to be distracted by so many things. Because this book is full of Jesus proving himself as God the Savior. Verse 31. Let's go in between those two first. Let's go back to verse 27. He's just healed the blind man. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, I want you to take a moment here and realize the picture that we've gone through so far. Back in Mark 6, Jesus performed so many miracles and people say, oh, he must be John the Baptist. He must be Elijah. He must be a prophet. He must be one of the prophets. And he proves himself. He feeds the loaves. He's, he walks on the water. He heals the blind. He heals the deaf. He feeds the people. And so now he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and said, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. Peter is starting to understand we can see that in uh, Matthew's telling of Jesus walking on the water as well. Peter begins to understand who Jesus is proving himself to be. In Mark thirty-one thirty-eight or through 38, Jesus begins to use very specific language now. He describes his resurrection from the dead, that was, which was prophesied about the Christ and the Messiah that would come. He, he explains that that's going to happen to him. He describes himself as a future in a future day coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
attributing to himself sonship with God. This is very strong language that um, many of the religious leaders of the time would not like to hear from the mouth of Jesus. They considered it blasphemy. Why? Because they were spiritually blind and deaf and did not recognize that he was the fulfillment of all of the scriptures that they had taken and divided into their own ways. They searched the scriptures, but they didn't see that it was Jesus that it was testifying about. In their blindness and deafness, they, they would deny who this man was and they would hate him for claiming to be God. He proves himself over and over as God the Savior, but the blind and deaf won't see it. But now Peter has made this confession that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And this is our last passage we'll look at in Mark. Chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, <clears throat> Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Now, this is interesting. Elijah appeared to them with Moses when they were talking with Jesus. So now, before their eyes, there, at least Peter, we see proof that he has now recognized Christ as the Messiah. And now, physically, he gets to see this transfiguration, it's called, of Christ becoming dazzling white, being transformed in front of his eyes. And what's more, in verse 7, a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. God has, or, or, Christ has been proving that He is God the Savior. And now the voice from heaven declares Him as the Son of God, his beloved son. Listen to him. He has all authority. He is not just uh, one of my favorite sons. He is the son of God, full authority, fully God. This story that has been painted now from chapter 6 is hits its pinnacle here with the voice of heaven declaring, this is my beloved son. So, Throughout the scripture, Jesus proves himself over and over as God the Savior. And so the question for us is, who do you think Jesus is? Was he just a figure in history? That's hard to deny. Some deny that, but they don't know their history very well. Jesus was absolutely a person that lived in our, uh, on our planet, walked to the earth, and he did many things. And the Bible is the evidence of what he did that proves that he was God the Savior. So who do you think he is? Do you have a different opinion of who Jesus is? The Bible would describe those who don't recognize Christ as God the Savior, as blinded and deaf. Hearing, right? Do we have enough evidence? Romans, right? Romans says, no one has an excuse. We don't need more evidence. Uh, as if creation weren't enough evidence in and of itself, God has spoken to us in his word. The word says that everything pertaining to life and godliness is here. The scripture testifies to Jesus of who he is. And knowing him and who he is, which we learn through his word, is eternal life. Who do you think Jesus is? Are you living blind? Are you living deaf? Are you living in response to who Christ is as God the Savior? This is what we'll close with. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, 
Because coming to Jesus and coming to Christ and, and recognizing who he is as redeemer, uh, the one who has, instead of us paying the wages of sin, uh, being death, that Jesus Christ, the full God Christ, uh, pure and pure actuality coming for us to, to save us from our sins through his death on the cross. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why is living Christ? Well, there's a sense in which eternal life, right? At, at our death, we will now go into an eternal life, uh, a perfect life without pain, without suffering. Uh, that is the, the result of putting our faith in who Christ was. But there's a practical sense, a logical sense in which our life now on earth is wasted. So many people don't want to come to Christ because they want to, they think they're having more fun. They think that the things of this world are where they're getting their satisfaction. But you know what happens when you chase the things of this world? You just want more of them, right? A lot of, I've heard a lot of celebrities say things like that. They, they wish people could have all the money in the world so that they would realize it's not enough and that they wouldn't spend their time chasing that. The things of this world will not satisfy. Life in this world is not about... Uh, some people think Christianity is, is come to Christ, suffer through this life, and have no fun, and then you get to go to heaven. No. True life is in Christ. Why? Four points, and they'll each be just a moment. 20, 30 seconds each. Don't hold me to that, but they'll be short. The first one is understanding our origins. Where did we come from? There is no explanation that makes sense. There's lots of scientific explanations, and the body of Christ should love science. You know who made science? God made science. Uh, we, we, should, we should enjoy that, but uh, in terms of, of what came first, right? We just saw that, that Christ, that God is pure actuality. He was the first cause. Without a first cause, there is nothing to come after. All of science boils down to this mystery of what was first. We could go a long way into that, but we won't. Just take my word for it. If you don't, we'll talk afterward. But take my word for it. None of it makes any sense. The, the, most, the best attempt to explain where we came from, from today's leading science scientists, is, is, is that we came from nothing, which must have been something interesting. That's what they said. Nothing must have been something interesting or mysterious. Okay? That's the smartest people that we have today. Say nothing was something. Okay, so instead, God being the first cause creating, we have a simple answer. I love knowing more than all the best scientists in the world, right? Uh, in the beginning, God created. There's, there's your origin. Meaning, what is the purpose of our life? In science, there is no purpose. It's get as much as you can, push everybody aside, be nice when it makes you feel good or benefits you, but really, it's about you. In the word of God, it's about being... Uh, being in a wonderful communion with the person who created us, that we were designed to be in communion with, where we function and, and have our peace and our, our comfort and our constant provision and our constant, uh, constantly met with, with the deepest needs of our soul in Christ. Morality, everyone believes in a right and wrong. But again, we talked about Christ as the pure actuality. There is no logical explanation for right and wrong outside of Christ. Every other... Uh, morality and logic begins and ends with the person who's trying to explain it. If you have a source for morality, it only applies to you. Culture, if you have some idea of, well, uh, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, that doesn't make any sense because it can only apply to you, so you can't tell me what to do. But no one really lives like that. We're very grateful for our laws, and we expect not to be murdered wherever we go. 
And the only way we can have that morality, again, we talked in Ephesians uh, uh, briefly, uh, Romans briefly, that the word of God is written on the hearts. Everyone has a pretty good understanding of not killing each other, usually, most places. The only way that we can have an ultimate standard that can't be argued out of is through the pure actuality of God and Christ and destiny. Where are we going? What's happening after this life? Are we evaporating into nothingness? That's what most, much of the world, maybe not most, much of the world believes. There are some who believe they're going to heaven simply because, because they're good or because they do more good than bad, maybe, but that's not what the scripture says. The only way we can make sense of destiny is to see a perfect God who, who perfectly judges wrong and perfectly rewards right. And that is met on the cross of Christ where the love of God and the justice of God meet perfectly in provision for those who would put their faith in Christ and, and uh, separation from God for those who would deny who Jesus was. Destiny. Are you ready for the destiny that is coming for each person. There's two options. There's not, there's not a third. There's no reincarnation. There's no uh, uh, um, in-between. There's no time after death to get things sorted out. There is either recognizing who Jesus is now and placing our faith in his uh, sacrifice or denying who God is, right? The one who proves himself over and over, Jesus proving himself over and over as God the Savior and being blind to that and refusing to see it. Are you ready? That question has been hitting me hard lately. I had a friend recently, a week ago, exactly a week ago, 27 years old. That's my age. 20, maybe you didn't know that. Uh, 27 years old, and he was hit and killed by a car. 27 years old. Um... Uh, I didn't do a good job of asking him if he was ready. He was a he was a churchgoer, so I hope he was ready. But he was twenty seven. No one, especially him, um, thought that his time was was ready. Are we ready? Is each one of us ready? And do we have that sense of urgency for those around us? How much? How much do we have to hate someone, right, to not ask them if they're ready? If, if this is what we believe, if we believe that Jesus is God the Savior and that in today's world everyone is, or most people are being blind and deaf to who that is and they're doing their own thing and they're not interested, uh, you, you have to hate that person, essentially. Maybe it's our fear and our shyness, but... Asking them and showing them who Jesus is. Helping them to understand that. Uh, uh, pointing them towards the scripture that they wouldn't be blind and deaf. So are you ready to stand before God, right? At death, we stand before God and he's not going to say, all right, let's put good and bad on the scale. Uh, I think at, at the judgment, what it's going to boil down to is who do you think Jesus is? What's your opinion of Jesus? Have you believed in his death for you or did you just think he was a man? That's all we're going to ha have on the day. And I, I hope that each of us would be ready to say, I'm awful, but Jesus died for me. He's my God and Savior, and He died for me. So that we can be welcomed into an eternity with Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you for loving us, for sending a way that our sins could be paid, for sending Jesus as God the Savior to pay that penalty, those, the wages of sin, the death that we owe, that we're going to have to answer for without Christ, to provide a way for us. Help us to recognize who Jesus is. If it's the first time we've, rec- we've, we've come to take a look at Jesus, let that change our hearts that we would come to him and cling to him. If, if we've been, uh, maybe we've been uh, Christians for a long time, we've been complacent, we just sort of recognize Jesus as the, 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 the person who did miracles and we fail to see him as God the Savior and fail to take on the urgency of who he is, that we would be convicted, that we would be changed, that we would uh, share that. Help, help those around us, that we would help those around us to see who Jesus is, that we would point them to who Jesus constantly proved himself to be as God the Savior. Help us not to be blind and deaf to who Jesus is. Open our eyes, open our ears that we could see and hear wonderful things from your word and understand uh, Christ and understand your, your love and your plan for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.